You are listening to The Real Men Feel Show with Andy Grant. Real Men Feel encourages men to allow and express all of their emotions. Despite what you may have been taught, all emotions do serve you. Real Men Feel is committed to engaging in discussions that most men aren't having, but you don't need to be a man to join us. The Real Men Feel Show is produced weekly for your growth and enjoyment. Listen to us on podcast platforms including iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and many more. You can also watch the show on YouTube by visiting realmenfeel.org slash YouTube. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or subscribe on iTunes by visiting realmenfeel.org slash iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at realmenfeel.org and at facebook.com slash realmenfeelshow. All links mentioned in each episode are in the show notes found on the blog at realmenfeel.org. Real Men Feel is brought to you by The Good Men Project. Visit goodmenproject.com for more of the conversations no one else is having. Your reviews, comments, feedback, and participation are welcome during the live show and anytime in our Facebook group, on Twitter, or at realmenfeel.org. Now, let's get into this week's show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Real Men Feel. This is your host, Andy Grant. I'm very excited that you're joining us, be it the first time or the hundredth time. You know, I'm always kind of excited that anyone listens to anything I do. And uh, it's a rare treat that someone does. But uh, we're bringing some of you today that uh, is going to bring a lot of value, has a great personal story, has a great way that he's going to give him back to the world. Um, but, you know, Real Men Feel is all about reminding you that as men, you are human beings and that you're encouraged and allowed to feel all of your emotions. And, you know, if you don't feel like a man or you're wondering what masculinity means and all this kind of stuff, just, you know, the best way I, I put it together is if you feel pretty comfortable on a daily basis in your own skin, then your definition of masculinity is working just fine. And if you don't feel comfortable calling yourself a man or feeling masculine, just rewrite the definition because the only definition that matters is yours, right? So with that, I want to welcome today's guest. He's a 9-11 first responder, a writer, a podcaster, Mr. Stephen Kavalkovich. Hey, Andy. How you doing, man? Thanks for having me on today. Appreciate it. Yeah, and we went through a lot of juggling and yeah. to, to get you here, so uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's great to be here. Great to be here anywhere. I say that all the time because there was a time where I didn't know if, I didn't know if I was going to be here Uh through self-induced choices and just through the process of where I went through. I had, you know, I mean, every day is a gift. Uh, sometimes I forget that, but I do, I do most days try to pinch myself and remember that no matter how bad it is, it could always be worse. So is that kind of a mindset that you've always had or was it through going through something that you realized that? Yeah, you know, I definitely didn't always have that. I think uh, somewhere deep down, I think I, I always believed that, uh, that, I was here for a purpose and I always, I believe that all of us, everybody on this earth, we were all given certain giftings, certain things that we're good at or that we're, we're more inclined to. And I think that there's the key to the key to finding out our purpose is to actually look within those things. And I also believe that our, our greatest, um, the greatest way we're going to help humanity is tied to the greatest pain that we've ever felt. Um, and I, I really believe that. And I think that's, at least it's been true in my life. I don't know if it's true for everybody, but I I'd like, you know, I can only speak from my experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that, that's, that's right on. And you're, you're saying so many things that, that I have come to believe in my own experience. Well, and one being that our experience is the, is the one thing that we can really rely on. And, you know, if we were debating about information and facts and opinion, that's one thing. But when you're talking about something that you've experienced, like mm -hmm. nobody can discount that. Right. Yeah. Right. And well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I find myself getting into uh, somewhat heated debates on social media sometimes, uh, specifically when it comes to the question of addiction being a choice and, and things like that. And, you know, at the end of the day, does it really like everything is tied to a choice, really? Everything that, you know, everything consequence or anything that we experience is tied to some form of a choice. Mm -hmm. So it's like, when you know especially i mean that's the hot one of the hottest topics today because it's it's killing more people you know we're losing more people than than we've lost in vietnam because of so you know opiates specifically opiates and 
a lot of people, you know, there's still a lot of uh, remaining ignorance that, oh, well, they chose to stick a needle in their arm. Well, yeah, that's true. But let me ask you a question. Do we demonize the person who's on their fifth bypass surgery because they've had multiple heart attacks and they continue to continue to eat high fat, you know, high fat, just, you know, bad foods and don't exercise? Does the cardiologist say to them, oh, well, you chose to be this way, so I'm not going to help you? So it's like, I, I think even when it comes down to, you know, to arguments like that, like, and I, and then I always tie it to my experience. So that goes back to what you said about experience and people eventually will come to me and say, well, who are you to say that? Are you a doctor? No, I'm not. Or, well, what are your credentials? My credentials are my, my, my experience. That's my credentials. And you can't take that away from me and you can't argue with me about it. I know what I know because that's where I've been. Right. And, and, you know, of course, everybody's an expert on social media. So, <laughs> you know, we all, everybody knows everything, but you know, I'm, I'm one of those people that I just, I think the fact that I'm, I, I am alive today, especially after some of the choices that I made, um, puts me in a position where I'm not afraid to say anything to anybody. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a, it's an empowering place to be. And it's kind of ironic because I remember my father, uh, who, you know, he lives in Florida today and, uh, he, he always has told me, I remember growing up, even into my younger adulthood, he would say to me, Oh, well just keep your mouth shut. And I remember thinking, no, like, no, I don't keep my mouth shut. That's not who I am. Like that might be who you are, but that's not who I am. And the moment that, in my life when I really in the last couple of years really just start, started taking a hold of who I am and not being apologetic for it and not keeping my mouth shut. I found more peace from that. Now granted in the past, keeping my mouth shut would always get me in trouble. Um, and sometimes still does, but it's a different kind of trouble. It's, I don't just, you know, argue. I used to in the past just argue and debate people just for the sake of debating or arguing just, just to be right. Whereas I don't argue to be right now. I just, I, I bring up points to make people think because I don't think people do a lot of that today. We're stuck in a really, we're, we're stuck in a society of group think and um, go along with the crowd. And you know what? No, no, nobody's individual. We're so used to, and we're so tied to how many likes we get or how many follows we get and things like that. And it's so superficial that we, I, I, I challenge people to think and it's people don't like that. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. I'll pick be the last thing anybody wants to do because yeah. it, and it's, it's easier to think you're right. If you don't think. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's crazy. I mean, I, I don't know, man. I just, I know that my life today is dramatically different than it was two years ago. And I mean, two years ago, right around this time, uh, matter of fact, literally right around this within a couple days of now, I overdosed on heroin for the last time in my parents' living room. And the people that came to save me, the, the rescue workers, the medics that came and saved me, one of them was my old partner because I was a medic prior to that. And, um, I still remember, I remember actually going and buying the bag of heroin. I remember doing it. I remember, and I, and this is even crazy. This is, this is experience. The, the bag said suicide squad on it. And I remember buying it. I went to my house. I loaded up the needle with half, of, half of the bag because I hadn't been using, I had been clean for a little while. And I, and I had the wherewithal in my mind to know if I do this whole bag, it might kill me. So let me just do half. But what I didn't know is how strong it was. And the next thing I know, I wake up and there's cops and medics and everybody's around me. My parents are there. And I look up and I see this lady, Terry, that I know. And I'm like, oh, my God, like, this is embarrassing. I mean, I really wasn't thinking about embarrassing necessarily at the moment, but it was just like, wow, is this what, what life has come to for me? And now I could say that two years later, the other medic that was on that call, I didn't know her, but she was a social worker in her prior career and then became a medic. Her and I are now working together to build a first responder peer support group in our local community. So there you go. 
you taking your greatest pain, your greatest despair, and turning it into something that's going to help humanity. So that I think that like my my if if we're if we're doing like a research paper, they say there's your hypothesis. I said that at the beginning, and there's my proof. Right. <laughs> you know. So so when you were an active first responder, when you were working as a medic, mm-hmm. were were you using back then, or is this something that came on after? Oh yeah, yeah. I wasn't using heroin, um, but I was ninety percent of the time at work. I was under the influence of something. Most of the time, it was uh, marijuana, or it was. Um, I was actually buying a lot of that. If you the spice, they call it like K two, and you buy it at like gas stations and stuff. I smoked that probably for a year, and the reason I would use that is because it wouldn't show up on a drug test at the time. And um, but I would go out. I'd walk outside and tell my partner I'm going to make a phone call or I'm going to smoke a cigarette, and I would just smoke and load up a joint on one of those. And uh, you know, then I respond to emergencies. I mean, it was <laughs> it was awfully bad. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't good, but I mean, it was that or um, coming in hungover from just drinking too much the night before. And then you'd have your partner start an IV on you and run a bag of fluid and some sugar and some thiamine through you to take with a hangover away quickly um and that was part of it too man like that was part of it too is being a healthcare provider i knew a lot more than the average person knows i knew how to manipulate the system i knew how to get doctors to write me scripts i knew how to fake injuries i was a master of faking kidney stones i would fake them all the time i'd wind up in the er and you know and i i mean Maybe I'm giving too much away here, but nowadays you can't really get away with it. So I guess it's okay if I share this, but I would even take a safety pin and I would pin it into this, to the pin of my, uh, into, into my shorts or my pants, go to the ER complaining of lower back pain, thinking it's a kidney stone, tell them, you know, I mean, I would put on the whole act. They'd have me go give a urine specimen. I would prick my finger with the pin, drop some blood in the urine. Now I have blood in my urine. And they're, you know, and they're, oh, he must, might be a kidney stone. So that would get me what I wanted, which would be narcotic painkillers. And eventually I would steal pills from patients' houses. Um, If I got, if I got dispatched to somebody who was like an 80 year old person, more than likely I wasn't thinking about how am I going to help this person. I was thinking, wow, what kind of pills are they going to have in their cabinet? Because more than likely they're going to have something. And then, oh, ma'am, I have to go check your medications and, and just verify privately by myself in their bathroom while I'm pocketing their pills. Um, That's just how bad it got. Um, And, 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 and I have to say this, that it wasn't like, if anybody says to me, because then we can go back to the, oh, well, you chose that. Okay, yeah. But if you thought, think for a minute that when I was 19, 20 years old, going through paramedic school, that my plan was to go and be in that situation years later, I mean, come on, that's, that's ludicrous. Of course it wasn't. Because that, that's what I wanted to ask. Like, had, did addiction exist, pre-existing addiction kind of lead you into this job of opportunity? Or did the pressure of the job kind of increase addiction? Like, what? Well, it, well and, and that's, that's a very interesting question. Um, for me, I, you know, growing up through high school and stuff like that, I really never, you know, I never did drugs. I never drank. I didn't do any of that stuff. But what I did have happen to me. When I was 14, a youth pastor tried to molest me, and I came forward about it. And he was the leader. He was a representative of a very large youth Christian organization, which still exists today. Very well known. And I, told, I, I came forward a week after it happened. The group, the, 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 the leaders of that group came up and visited with my parents and me at a church in my town. Ironically, I would go to AA meetings there years later. Um, but I met with them, and they basically said, uh, well, it sounds like you're kind of fabricating this. It really didn't happen. So, I, every, you know, I, it got dropped, and I got abandoned. Um, I felt shame, guilt, all those things. I didn't know that's what I felt at the time, but that's what I started to experience. And then um, about a couple months later, I had a chance to date a really, really nice cheerleader, um, and we, you know, beautiful girl. We dated for like a couple weeks or so, a week maybe, I don't know. Then we hated each other because that's what you do in high school when you break up. And people still do it today, I'm sure. But even in high school, that's what you do, you know. And 
six months later, I was standing next to her at a Christmas concert, singing in the choir for, for the holidays at a local Catholic church. They happened to put us both next to each other in, in the order where we stood. And I remember thinking, it's literally like as if she's standing right next to me right now. I can remember thinking, man, I should apologize because I was pretty mean to her. I did some, some pretty mean things and it's Christmas time and you never know what could happen. But I was too afraid of getting rejected. I was too afraid of getting abandoned again or, you know, getting made fun of or whatever, ego, pride. And I didn't say anything. And an hour later, she was killed in a car accident. And I, I took that on myself because I said, well, if I took that 10 seconds to apologize, she wouldn't have been to that spot on that road where that guy hit her, you know? But that being said, so then I joined the fire department. I was in high school. I joined as a junior member right after that incident happened. I was 16 years old. And what I did not know is unconsciously I was becoming a rescuer because no one was there to rescue me from all the stuff that I carried around. And, and we could go on from even earlier in childhood with all the fears of inadequacy, self-loathing, low self-esteem, being picked on. You know, now they use the term bullying. I was just picked on as a kid. You know, it wasn't as harsh as it, as it is on kids today, but that storm, all that stuff compiled together and become a, uh, became a first responder. And this is a huge, a huge message I want people to understand. When I became a junior member in the fire department, I got a uniform, I got a badge, I got a pager, I got a sense of importance. I also got an identity. I got an instant identity. And that's what I carried around for the next uh, 18 years or so. And it's so huge. This is such a huge point because when we identify ourselves with something outside of ourselves, what happens when that thing goes away? And then in 2013, the summer of 2013, when I showed up to work for the, to my, for the last time I showed up to work high and they fired me, they called the state and the state was nice enough to let me re uh, give up my certification as opposed to them revoking it. I lost my identity because for for all those years, whenever Andy meets me at the restaurant, I say, hi, Andy, you say, hi, Steve. And then you say, what do I do? I say, hi, I'm a paramedic. I didn't say that's what I did. I said, that's who I am. And when who I am was gone, I didn't know who I was anymore. And the spiral, the downward spiral, the downward spiral got worse. And I, you know, my career like I was over at that point. My marriage was over. My wife had divorced me. I, I had little, I, I really wasn't seeing my kids off and I had no idea what I was going to do because it's career wise. Cause that's all I knew. And then add another injury, which was a physical injury an elbow injury, which was, was a legitimate, legitimate injury. <laughs> I wound up with more painkillers and then the doctor cut me off and I wound up, I was already physically hooked on, taking something to ease that uh, irritability, discontentment that I had inside that I carried around. And narcotic painkillers, they, they do an okay job of physical pain, but they did a hell of a great job on emotional pain. I was already hooked on them. I was buying, then I wound up buying them on the streets. Of course, my career was over. I was working little jobs. I had no money. Couldn't afford to buy a $30 Percocet or Oxy on the street, but somebody said, well, you know, if you buy this bag, it's only five to 10 bucks. Oh, well, that's, that's the deal. So, okay. As long as I don't put it in a needle, I'll be fine. But that lasted like a week because the progression got worse and I wound up, you know, overdosing a few weeks later and nobody knew about it. And then I kept going for a little while until that last overdose. So all that being said, it, it wasn't my plan. And I was somebody who knew better, right? Because that's another thing people will say, oh, well, don't people know better? Well, I was an educated person. I gave Narcan, which is the drug that reverses an opiate overdose. I probably gave Narcan, I don't know, four or 500 times in my career, maybe. I knew better. I saw it all the time. Of course, you know, I mean, logically, rationally, I knew better, but this thing's not about knowing better because I'm a living example of that 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 fact that it's not about that it's not as black and white as right and wrong and up and down and, and that it's not that so that's kind of like the abridged version of what wound up happening to me that's amazing 
Um, how, how common a story is yours in the world of first responders? Are, are you kind of an, an outlier or is uh, a, a <clears throat> How common is it? Uh, I would say it's very common. It's also not talked about. And, and that's the interesting thing too, is even back when, I mean, I, I worked as a most, for the majority of my career, I worked as a medic in Atlantic City, New Jersey. You know, I mean, Vegas Junior, really. So, you know, we're, we're, it's, it's a, it's a dark environment. Um, you know, it's just a very dark place. And I remember working with coworkers, driving the medic unit, and they're saying, oh my, you know, oh my God, we were going to the third overdose of the night. I can't stand having to save these junkies. And I remember thinking, consciously thinking in my head, oh, well, I guess I can't share what's going on with me because I know how they feel. And they don't know that I just stole a big bottle of Oxycontin from that patient we were just at. Like, like you, I had to suffer in silence because you couldn't talk about it. There's this attitude about, you have to be tough, suck it up, deal with it. And whenever I hear that, I always say this. I say, think about the average person, just an average human being like yourself. You deal with the regular stresses of life, just being a human being. You know, the rent's got to be paid or the mortgage's got to be paid. The, you get a flat tire on the way to work. Just the daily struggles of life, right? Now take that same person with the daily struggles of life and tell them, your job is now to go respond to everybody's worst day and you need to do it all day, every day for the next 25 years or so. And now I need to tell you to just suck it up and deal with it. I mean, if you, if you paint it in that picture, it's a pretty ludicrous thing to even ask somebody to, to do, but that's the attitude that's been there ever since the beginning of first responders. Right. And it's, it's, it's not an appropriate expectation but that's just the attitude that's been there for, for years and years and decades. It's so, is it common? Yes. I think it's very common. Um, you, you, were, you, you can't turn on the news today. Or you can't go on social media, especially my social media, because I'm linked up with so many different PTSD groups and whatever. And hearing about a cop suicide or a firefighter suicide, it's, it's, it's happening all the time. And I don't know if it's happening more nowadays or if it's always been happening and we just have more access to the information because of technology. I don't know. But I know that humans have always been humans since the beginning of time. And I also know that that's another thing. Underneath the uniform or the badge or the fire gear, the, the sirens and the lights and the, and the adrenaline and all that, they're human beings underneath that to deal with human being things and also deal with the stuff they deal with at work. And it's, it's just today is a day. These are the days that, I mean, I, I look at myself. I'm, I, I believe that one of the reasons that I was fortunate to stay alive through all that is to do what I do now because I can freely talk about stealing pills from people's houses or, or doing totally unethical, immoral things while working because I'm not getting on an ambulance ever again as a career. Somebody who's still doing that job can't really be as open as I am about it because they have to protect their career. But I guarantee you it happens. I guarantee you it happens. So, so what helped you, what got you from the, <laughs> the last overdose? Mm -hmm. I, I, like, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think you were in the mindset of trying to help people at that point. No, I don't think so. so. All right. So what got you from there? You've 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 lost everything. You've had the downward spiral. Your your drug use is is off the charts. You're mm -hmm. you're being. How did you get from there to today when you're now trying to trying to get back and help people in those situations? Well, I attribute it to a few things. Um, one of the major ones is, and I say I get I get a lot of fam parents and family members of people who are addicted contact me all the time and they'll say, my son, I just want him to stop doing this. How do I, how do I get him to stop? And my very first response is you can't get him to stop. What you can do is do something different because he's used to the dance between you and him. He's used to manipulating you. He's used to him saying this and you doing that. That's what he's used to do something different, get some help for yourself and change the script a little bit because chances are he's not going to change on his own. 
if you change something, it might open his eyes and he might do something different. That's what I attributed to helping me. It's my parents. They were in the living room that day when that happened. My dad was 70 years old. My mom was in her mid-60s at that time. And they had helped me. They'd sent me to multiple rehabs. They'd been paying my bills and giving me a place to stay and feeding me and bailing me out, all kinds of stuff for years. Finally, at that point, they said, enough is enough. We love you, but we can't keep digging this grave with you. Some people call it tough love. I hate that phrase because I think that's just too general. They just said, we love you, but, you know, we also, like, this is killing us. And they, they got some help for themselves. They said, you can't stay with us anymore. And I went into a panic because I said, wait a minute, I always had a safe place to land at mom and dad's, not anymore. They said enough's enough. That was A. B, I got on medication. And that's something that can be very, that, you know, it, we talk about stigma, which is just another word for discrimination. And the word stigma gets thrown around a lot in the, in the addiction recovery mental health area. But you know where it's even worse? In the rooms of recovery. 12-step rooms and I'm not judging 12-step rooms I, they're okay they're, if that's if that's what somebody needs to do to stay alive then go for it but what I have a problem with is like I, I I was I had been going to like NA meetings for years and I had always heard you have to be absent and absent and absent and absent from all mighty mood altering substances and you can't be on suboxone which is a medication that you know that helps with uh the the help with, helps with being addicted to opiates um and i was i always believed oh i can't be on medication because they tell me i'm not clean if i'm not if i'm on medication because that's an that's a substance and then i got to thinking you know what enough's enough like this hasn't worked for me rehabs and na has not worked so i went and got a doctor i got on suboxone i learned the science behind the brain I learned that if you take opiates for 10 years and your brain creates all these receptors the average person doesn't have, when you stop, those receptors still demand to be filled. And going to church meetings, church meeting, church basements for meetings isn't going to fill those receptors, no matter how, hard, how many meetings you go to. So I, got on, I met a doctor who put me on Suboxone, which fills those receptors just enough to, to ease that craving so I, my mind is not stuck on how do I fill that fill that craving, I, then I could start addressing my life issues, my underlying trauma, get therapy, start getting a job, start, start becoming responsible, and start learning how to you know, live life on life's terms. Um, so I, 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 did so, I did something different too, because I was used to going to rehab, doing a detox, doing a rehab, going to NA, going to AA, and it wasn't working for me. This is what worked for me. And I'm, you know, of course, I'm going to be a little biased because it's what worked for me. <laughs> but, um, you know, again, going back to the ironic statements that I hear in rooms of, of recovery when they say being abstinent from all mood, mood and mind-altering substances, coming from people who are smoking cigarettes like chimneys and drinking monster energy drinks, and I'm like, how are you going to judge somebody on medication when you're loading your, your lungs full of, of tar and nicotine? Like, what are we talking about? Like, this is not – and then if you hear – the word, the, a lot of the phrasing is, you know, that, that the addiction, whatever you use to cope was just a symptom of the problem. It's not the problem. The problem is self. Then why are we so focused on how much time you've had without a symptom? Like, I think it's ludicrous. <laughs> like, I really, I just, I can't, I, I can't wrap my brain around that. And um, so those are the things I did. And then, and this is a big one too, Andy, I started finding out who I was. I started really like accepting myself for who I was. Like I was a kid, you know, a boy who was not a typical boy. I'm still not. I don't like sports. I, I the, the first football game I ever watched in its entirety was this year's Super Bowl. Um, because that's just not who I am. I don't care about that stuff. I don't care about cars. I don't care about tools. I don't care about being tough and manly and, and macho. That's just not who I am. I'm the kind of guy that likes to watch Broadway shows or sit and listen to fuck, like watch I Love Lucy episodes on a Sunday afternoon. And I used to believe there was something wrong with me. Society told me that there, I was, I, there was something wrong. And I finally accepted there's nothing wrong with me. That's just who I am. And I'm going to embrace who I am. And I also started to embrace that I like to speak. I knew that I was not afraid to speak in front of crowds. And that's, this goes back to what I said all the way at the beginning of this talk. That our, the things we're good at, the things, you know, like, or the, those, those things that we're slanted to, I think, are, are the things we're supposed to do. Yeah. 
And whenever I talk to people and they're like asking for advice or coaching or something, and I, I just recently, a kid was like, well, I like to play the guitar, like, but I'm not famous. I'm like, so what does famous have to do with playing the guitar? If you play the guitar, you're a musician. If you write, you're a writer. If you paint, you're an artist. Does that mean that you're going to be Stephen King or does that mean you're going to be Beyonce? I don't know. But it does mean that you stop trying to measure yourself in somebody else's yardstick, you know? Like, measure yourself to your own. So I started writing. That's where I started. And I started writing for different blogs. And then I realized after a while, I was doing a lot of writing and I was getting a lot of great feedback, but I realized that people just don't read like they used to. Um, I mean, even if you go online and you look at articles, they'll say four minute read, six minute read, because then you have to decide, is this worth my six minutes of time? So, you know, and I know you, you, you do a lot of blogging and you have like the good men project and all that. So I'm sure you've noticed, you know, that the, it's just the audience isn't what it was, let's say five, 10 years ago. It's just different. So about a year ago, about 14 months ago, I, I just got frustrated and I'm like, how do I reach more people? And the idea of podcasting came to mind. And I was like, well, podcasting, I've been listening to podcasts for years and wow, maybe I could do that. Then I thought, what am I going to talk about? Well, I think the best thing to talk about is what I know. So I looked around to see if there was any shows for first responders and mental health. And I realized there wasn't any show that I could find anywhere in the world. And I realized there's 8 billion people or so in this world and nobody else is doing it. That's called opportunity. So, you know, I launched the show. I didn't even launch it yet, actually. I started build, putting it together with a guy out in Utah or Montana, I think, in June last year. I, and this is just how one of those, if you want to call it the universe, God, spiritual, whatever. I happen to be friends on Facebook with the CEO of Mental Health News Radio Network. I didn't even know I was friends with her. I didn't even know who she was. But somehow we were friends. I wrote a blog article announcing I'm doing this podcast. She sends me a message, says, I want to talk to you. I said, okay. Set up a phone call. She goes, I love the idea of what you're doing. This is who I am. I run a, the podcasting network for mental health. This is a great show to add. Would you like to be a part of it? Wow. My show's not even up yet. How do you know if it's going to be any good? Because I just know, you know, I know it will. That's basically what she said. She took a chance, took me on, and we were on the network before the first show aired in August of last year. And uh, since that time, I've uh, done, I think we have about 40, 50 shows up or so right now. I do one a week. Um, but it's what it's done for me as a person has changed my life tremendously because it's built my confidence. It's told me that I can do anything I want. I can follow my dreams. I can follow my passions. I can help people. It's not the helping people part is not about me and it's not about ego. It's just trying to help one other person. As I heard TD Jakes once said that I'm just one beggar telling another beggar where he got the bread. That's all. <laughs> and, um, you know, I got, you know, and Kristen with the network has, you know, given me a position on the network as uh, the director of development. So I've helped as of today, I've helped bring six shows on other shows of other podcasters onto the network since, uh, since, since last year, uh, I've gotten more, I, I do a lot of speaking. I started my own consulting business. I have my kids in my life. Uh, at the time last year, right at this time last year, I had restrictions. I couldn't drive them anywhere. I couldn't have them overnight by myself. I had to take regular hair follicle tests. As of today, I take them anywhere I want. I have them. I have no restrictions on me anymore. It's a blessing. I have a better relationship with my kids. I, got, I gave my parents a beautiful gift in August of last year. They got to move to Florida and not have to worry about their adult son anymore. So they're down there retired, playing, you know, bingo and going swimming in the pool all day. And um, here's another crazy one. So this I, this girl that I've been dating for about four years, she's stuck with me through the worst the worst parts of my life. I cheated on her. I left her, her family. Like at this time last year, her parents and her brothers wanted nothing to do with me. They did not want to hear my name. A year later, we're going to Disney world Saturday and her dad's taking me, um, you know, um, her dad, uh, we just got engaged a couple months ago. Her dad, we just booked the place. He's paying, I mean, he's paying for the wedding. He bought me a car a few months ago. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm paying him back, but he helped me get it. You know, I have a, bit, a great relationship with our family. I have a great, you know, a good relationship with my ex-wife. That's, that's my last 
<laughs> like, so you really have reconciled every old destroyed relationship and pattern, it seems. For the most part. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm definitely having, I will never say I've arrived, but I'm definitely continuing on the journey, climbing up the mountain. Um, I have a twin brother who, uh, unfortunately, through a lot of the turmoil, we have not had a very close relationship. That's getting better slowly. Um, but the big one really for me is my ex-wife. I mean, she's getting remarried in a couple weeks. And uh, her, my son is 10 and my daughter is 7. Back in the wintertime, we noticed that my son was starting to have some real struggles with anxiety and kind of emotional stuff, which I think had a lot to do with me, with me being in and out of the picture, the divorce, all that. So we started taking him to counseling. Me and her started taking him together. A couple weeks into it, the counselor realized, you know what, I think maybe you two need to come by yourselves with me, not with him, just the two of you, because if you start getting your stuff handled, things will work better, you know, it'll be better for him. So reluctantly, she came, and we go, matter of fact, I think we have a session this week or something, but we get along, we don't fight, we treat each other with respect, and my son's issues have kind of resolved Mainly, I mean, you know, he's he's about to hit teenage years, so those issues will start coming. But we're equipped better as co-parents to be able to handle it now, because she doesn't carry around all this animosity and anger towards me, which she's been carrying around for years. Um, you know, I wouldn't say we're friends, but we're definitely not enemies. Yeah. And so it's like I'm a living example of the fact that no matter how bad it gets, if you're still breathing, you have a chance. Yeah. Exactly. When you. <clears throat> when you'd lost a job, the marriage is over, you know, you're, you're getting the suicide squad packet. Mm -hmm. Did you think where you are, how you feel, everything you described, do you think this was like slightly a possibility for you even? No, no. I, I, I knew it's crazy though, because I knew deep down that I was meant to speak to the world. I knew it. I, I remember, I remember the last time <clears throat> I walked into Camden, New Jersey, which is one of the worst, drug markets in the, in, in the world. I live five miles from there. I literally like can be there in 10 minutes from here. And I, I, I used the last time I drove into the set to where I was going to pick up some dope. I remember on the way there thinking, I am just going to find the biggest, scariest, darkest looking guy I can find. I'm going to call him the N word and I'm going to pray that he kills me because that's how bad I just didn't want to live anymore. I, 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 I was so depressed. I was so I full of despair. I was so empty that I didn't care anymore. And I got to the set. I walked into the to the to the little row homes that were there. I found the guy, and I almost said what I thought I was gonna what I had planned on saying. But then I was like, "Can I get a bag?" Because I, of course, didn't. I didn't really want to die. I just didn't want to. I didn't want to feel the way I felt anymore. Right. You didn't. Um, you didn't you didn't like living the way you were living, but you didn't know how to change it. Oh God, no, I just didn't know anymore. And then, yeah, I did. I definitely didn't foresee any of this stuff. Um, you know, I'm just, and, and again, it's not about like the, um, the, um, physical objects or the, or the material possessions, but like, just like little things. Like I never saved money before. Like I have a savings account today. Like my act now, my fiance is smart. She started an account for me. My name's not even on it. I just give her my money and she puts it in there because she don't let me touch it. But like, I have a, I have a savings account with a comma in it. And like, I've never had that before. And again, it's not about, Oh, well, look at me. It's more like it can be turned around. It took time. It took time. I had to humble myself. Right before I started the podcast two years ago or last year, I was working at Dunkin' Donuts making $9 an hour and just doing a humbling job working, you know, and it was, it was, I had to embrace the humility of that for me because I carried around a lot of pride and ego of like, well, don't you know who I am? And, you know, I, that's why I always thought I was so damn important and I realized that I'm not as important as I think I am. And uh, I would suggest you're, you are important, just not in the ways that you. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, you know, I came a long way and um, it's amazing. And, you know, I don't know what the future is going to hold, but I know that I go, I, I don't pass out at night. I don't black out at night. I don't, I don't, I don't cheat. I don't steal. You know, I'm not perfect. I still make mistakes. Um, of course. 
but uh, my life is infinitely better than it was. And no, I don't think that two years ago I saw any of this on the horizon. I really did. Cool. So is there any one thing or a few things that you wish other first responders knew that you had to learn through this really arduous road? Like, what do you wish other first responders just knew right now? That you're a human being and it's okay to not be okay. And it's certainly okay to, to address those, address not being okay. And you also, like the more people that speak up about it, I'll give you an example. I spoke up in Connecticut back in March at a peer support group for first responders. And <clears throat> there was this firefighter there who, you know, he's for, from a large fire department in, in, in Connecticut. He was a career firefighter. He wound up going away for, uh, I think it was alcoholism was his issue. And he came back and he wanted to start a peer support group for the first, for the firefighters at the firehouse. And at first he was ridiculed and they were like, Oh, what are you guys going to go to the crybaby meeting or something like that? And these, a lot of the guys ridiculed him, but he kept it. He kept it. He, he kept at it kept at it he believed in what he was doing you know a year later that the guys that were making fun of him are guys that go to that meeting now it takes one person it takes one to start something big to to, to change everything i mean look at your people like gandhi and your martin luther kings and you know any example of any change any any major change or shift has started with one person um and I think about there's a philosopher from the 1800s. His name was Arthur Schopenhauer. And he said that all great ideas go through three stages. First, they're ridiculed. Next, they're drastically opposed. And eventually, they serve as self-evident. And I think in the world of mental health and first responders, we're, at the dra we're between the drastically opposed and self-evident place. And I know that I'm going to do everything I can to keep it open. Like, again... Am I ever going to get on an ambulance again? I mean, unless I'm a patient, God forbid. No, I don't think so. Or a fire truck or something. No, that's not. I might, that chapter is closed. But if I can help keep one person doing their job, being able to retire, you know, health in a healthy way, keep their marriage together, you know, not wind up in jail or wind up dead or something like that, then I'm going to do it. I'm going to do that. And I just know that I'm going to keep on keeping on doing what I'm doing. Uh, my goal, my, you know, my, my future goals now are just to kind of turn the consulting and speaking thing into a full-time thing, um, getting there slowly. Um, <laughs> but I've got some gigs coming up. I'll be in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, let's see, September 14th. And, uh, and I'll be at the uh, McHenry County Mental Health Board's uh, event as a keynote speaker in McHen uh, Crystal Lake, Illinois, September 14th. Uh, September 14th is that Knoxville, September 21st. Um, and like, it's amazing to me. Like I, I remember seeing, um, yeah, I'm sure you're familiar with Brian Tracy and Les Brown. And I saw those guys speak back in 2006 at a convention in Oklahoma city. And I remember thinking, I just want to do that. Now I'm getting to do that. And like, they're like, now, I mean, they're, they're paying me to come and share my story because it holds value. And and, you know, it's not about bragging. It's not about the money. It's about being able to give somebody hope. That's what it's about. And I, I'm just blown away, man. Blown away. So I totally get and feel your passion and that you now are really living um, kind of the quote you opened the show with, mm -hmm. that what you're here to do, your purpose is so tied to your pain, right? Yeah, it is. But, but if so, where you are now, how good everything feels how, and I can say how important you are and just not in a, in an egoic way. Yeah, sure. But if, if you could, you know, time machine, whatever sort of trickery, if you could go back and not have that painful crap you went through, you know, would you live life over again or are you kind of glad it all happened the way it happened to get you where you are now? I it's well, people always ask me that in a different way. They'll say, do you have any regrets? So it's kind of like the same, you know, similar to the same kind of question in a way. And the only thing I would go back and change is the pain I caused other people. Um, but no, I wouldn't change anything. I wouldn't try to relive it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, Doc Brown and DeLorean it. I wouldn't do any of that. I would, uh, because I think we have to go through the things we have to go through 
no matter how painful they are. I, I don't, re- I, I, I don't think I'd be anywhere near where I am today if I didn't go through any of that. A matter of fact, real quick, I, I think about this. When that guy tried to molest me at 14, my friend Bill was this Jesus t-shirt, Bible-carrying kid and 14 years old. And I remember he was the first person I told. And I go to church with Bill today. And I remember a few years ago, Bill said to me, I don't know why you had to go through that. I don't know. I saw your life go where it went after that happened all those years ago. I don't know why it had to be you, but I know that it was for a purpose. It wasn't in vain. And you're going to help a lot of people with it. And he was, and I believe he was right. Um, you know, it's, I think about, um, I, you know, I, as a TV preacher, Joyce Meyer, um, she always talks about this, the childhood sexual abuse she went through. And she always talks about how, had she not gone through that, she would have nothing to talk about today. You know? You know, mention, uh, I, I like I mentioned, the, the, the kind of the one thing you regret is close would be the pain that you cause other people. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and I don't know if I've ever said this before, but I'm realizing it now, like, for me, I don't think I would have changed how I was seeing and living and treating myself. I don't know that I could have changed if I didn't see the pain I was causing other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you're being, you're being aware of that made you it, like that fueled your change as opposed to you wanting to do it just for you. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. That's a, that's actually an interesting way of putting it because um, I remember what it was like to see my parents. Hmm. Yeah, I remember what it was like and uh, just that I was destroying them. And like, seeing, you know, I remember when I, this was a year prior to that overdose when I, I you know, I, I'd been using and I had my kids for a summer vacation with my mom and we were going to take them to the Lego exhibit in Philadelphia the next morning. And I put them to sleep, bought the tickets, were so excited. They went to bed and I, I woke up the next, or I went to, I went in the bathroom to get high after they went to bed. And my mom found me in the bathroom. Like I, we believe it was laced with something cause I was going, I was out of control. And she says, I'm taking you to the hospital. Go kiss your kids. I went and kissed them on the forehead and I didn't see them again for months. And I'll never forget that. I'll never forget how bad that felt. Like, and I don't ever want to forget that. Like now, like my kids, like, you know, they, it's, it's just amazing. Like, and I mean, I missed time in their life. I missed time and that you can't get that back. Like there are, there are moments that I'll never be able to get back, but every moment I have with them now, like I cherish every moment of it. And I mean, I'm just, I'm one of the, I'm one of the fortunate ones because a lot of people, especially when they're doing the stuff I was doing, don't get out, you know? And then you hear this a lot, they have to reach their bottom. The problem is today people don't have the time to reach their bottom if that even exists because the stuff that's out there on the street today, one shot, you're dead. It, it's not like it was in the past. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you can easily be dead while you're wondering if you're about to hit rock bottom. Just- yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's, it's just too dangerous out there. And I'm just, I'm very, very, very fortunate. Yeah. Well, I get it, you know, it's, <clears throat> I can't imagine how, challenging and hard it was for for your parents to but it, yeah it like so my, my background is a lot of depression a lot of suicide attempts I'll hear from a lot of parents when their children are, are dealing with that and they don't know what to do and you, you can't help someone that's not willing to be helped yet mm-hmm. and so to, to see the pain that you're causing the people in your life it, it, it's once you can see that 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 I think is makes the crack into willing to make a change but but it sounds like you know them making a different them them not reacting the same way to you that they always have, um, and not you know enabling is another term that's always out there. But not supporting it, not going along with it, not making it not making it as easy as mm-hmm. perhaps had been for you to keep fucking up your life. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. And that's what it takes for everybody. If if it's you know a spouse, children, parents, friends, coworkers. If, if you keep making it easy for them to avoid changing their life, they won't. Yeah. Why would you? Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's, there's no incentive. Um, you know, and I just, I'm just glad I had the clarity at the time to 
to finally say enough was enough and to walk away from the conventional belief that I carried that, you know, you know, I have to be abstinent. I can't, I can't, I have to go with what the, 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 the meeting tells me or what the people in AA tell me. And again, I'm not downing AA, but I'm just saying in there's AA has been around since 1935. It was the first recovery group, the first mainstream recovery group, nothing wrong with it, but technology, the world has moved on. It's time to start embracing science and start doing, start, to embracing it's time to start embracing evidence-based things to see that there's many ways out and i don't give a damn if you have to stand in the middle of the street on tuesday night at 7 30 at night to keep yourself straight to have a better life then go freaking do that like as long as you're not hurting anybody else if you got to join a knitting club or you got to go to a square dancing group i mean that might be weird i guess but if that works for you go do it whatever whatever it is man like a lot of things of, of any group Knitting or AA, it's giving you somewhere to go, giving you something that fills your time, giving you a community, right? So it, does, it can be. Yeah, whatever it is. It's, it's, it's like-minded individuals embracing things they like. And, you know, the, the principle, the core principles are great. It's just a lot of the, 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 strange, the strange condemnation that happens that I just want nothing to do with. And I'm just, I'm tired of seeing, I'm tired of seeing rest in peace messages on social media every day. I see them every day. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of parents, kids losing their parents, parents losing their kids. I'm just sick and tired of it. And, you know, I'll speak up. I'll go toe to toe with anybody about it. And, and again, I can't, I can't speak because I have any of these, you know, I don't have letters after my name. I don't have a college degree. I got life experience. And that's, that's my, I got street cred. That's what I got. <laughs> you know? No. And I mean, if, if, if someone wants to change their life, if someone's, you know, dealing with the things, the pain that, that you've gone through, they're, they're afraid they're heading into it. They're in it. They know someone in it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would want to, to, to hear from someone that's gotten themselves out of it. Not someone that's just says studied it and researched it or read about mm -hmm. it. You know? Um, no, I think, uh, yeah, your, your street cred is legit, and uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I love that you're using it to uh, that you're being loud about it, and you're using it that way, right? Yeah, it's 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 it is something, man. It's 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 a it's a ride. It's a journey for sure. It really is, and uh, it's gonna keep on riding that wave. And hey, man, I'm going to Disney World <laughs> a couple days in August, <laughs> but I'm going to Disney World. I get, you know, it's like, I get, I get to do things. I get to like, I don't like have to do things. I get to do things. And if you, even if you change your mindset about even like the mundane things we don't like to do in life and you just say, I get to like, it makes you appreciate the fact that some people don't get to another thing. One of the other things I do, as a matter of fact, in about an hour, hour and a half, I have to go. I work in a dialysis unit a couple of days a week as a tech. So I'm working there tonight and I want to talk about a place that puts things into perspective. Go hang out in a dialysis unit one day because you'll, you'll get some perspective on life and what, what restriction is, what, what uh, being tied to, um, to a chair is like because um, I, 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 see that every, I see that very regularly. And it also keeps things green for me a little bit. It helps me just to remember, you know, I try to remember – I'm not in that chair. I'm very fortunate that I'm not, but if I can help somebody have a better day in that chair, then that's what I'm going to do. Cool. That's what I, that's what I love about it. it it's uh, from, from doing that, from, from your speaking, your consulting, the podcast, you're, you're about service. And it sounds like you used to be a lot about selfishness. Oh God. It was, it was all about me, man. Me, 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 me. I want more and more and more. And the hell with you. Now it's like, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't need, I, I, I'm good. I'm good. It's all, you know, and I really believe the principle that Jim Rohn, I believe it was Jim Rohn said, the more you give, the more you'll have to give. And it's, it's such a paradox because it doesn't make sense in our brains, but it's true. Like the more that we give away, the more we'll have. It's true. And I think if the world embraced that a little bit more, man, we'd have a lot more peace in this world. But unfortunately that's, that's, you know, that's, those are some walls that are going to be taking some long chipping away with a very small shovel, you know? Indeed. So uh, what sort of topics does you, do you cover on your podcast? Uh, well, strictly it's um, anything related to like uh, mental health, PTSD, relationship issues, um, addiction, um, 
you know, anything like that. I have different guests. Um, I usually, I'm, I'm pretty universal. I can kind of usually craft a show around anybody. I just had um, Robin Williams' son, Zach, on the show uh, last week, uh, two weeks ago. He, the episode, I think, will be up. I'm going to put it up probably this week. Um, and that was all, you know, just from reaching out. I saw him on Anderson Cooper one night. They were talking about suicide. This was after Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade. Um, they were doing a round table. I saw oh, Zach Williams. I'm going to friend with Crest him on Facebook. He, friend, he, he accepted that night. I sent him a message and he said, let's do it. So I had him on the show and such a nice guy. And we were just talking about the effects of suicide on the family members that are left behind. And it was a really powerful talk. And one thing I really was, I was happy about is, you know, I just treated him like a human being, man. Like, you know, I, I said, you know, you're just a guy, man. Like, I'm like, Zach, how are you doing? As a, how are you doing, Zach? Not how are you the famous guy's son? How are you doing the person, Zach? And he was like, man, I really appreciate you asking me that because most people don't think to. Because people forget that, you know, he's also a human being, too. And uh, it's cool. So, like, I, you know, we have – I, I could kind of craft the show around different things like that. I also uh, recently just got us uh, – we just got the show sponsored. So we have a sponsor. Um, so they uh, contribute some of their guests, some of their the therapists. So it's a, it's a th telehealth company called Stepstone Connect out of uh, Utah. So they do basically like we're doing right now. They do therapy the same way we're doing right now. So essentially, like, you could be my therapist talking to me in the comfort of my own home, getting therapy one-on-one -on -one like this, and I don't ever have to leave my, my house. So they do that. They sponsor my show. And that's, that's a blessing, too. Like, this thing just started off as, like, I just want to do this thing. Like, I wasn't looking in it to make money, and now I actually make a little bit of an income off of it. So that's pretty cool, too. Awesome, awesome. So what, what's the easiest way for someone to find the podcast? Uh, best place to find me would be go to rescuetherescuer.com. Um, that's the link to the show. You can, the show itself is, that's the name, Rescue the Rescuer. can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and also on all Alexa devices um, through TuneIn, I believe it is. And uh, yeah, rescuetherescuer.com. Or I can be found for, um, you know, for writing, speaking engagements, uh, expert witnessing, uh, things like that at rescuedconsulting.com, which is my company. Cool. Awesome. Well, uh, again, I, uh, I, I love your, your passion and your story and, and how you've turned it around to, to be of service. And, you know, I do think that lived experience is the most beneficial thing that, that any human being can share with someone else. Mm -hmm. So uh, kudos to you. Glad you're still here. Glad you got to Disney. <laughs> yeah, man. Thanks. It's good. it's good to be here. It really is. It's it really is. And man, I really appreciate you doing what you're doing for for men. Like I really think that this this is cool because you know we have we have to break the whole idea that men can't be have feelings. Like that's crap. Like we're we we we're allowed to talk about it. It's okay. And some of the manliest men I know are the, the ones that cry the most. Yeah. You know. Yeah, because again, you've, you've said it multiple times, we're human. Yeah, we're just human. Yeah. So many guys have been taught that, no, that, that's not quite. No, I'm, I'm this one piece of human. I'm allowed to be angry and miserable and shameful. Those are the three things I run on. And like, no, it's, no, it's, it's not yeah. it. No, man. Andy, it's, it's great what you're doing. I love, I love your show. I love the show. I love everything you're doing, man. And um, I'm excited to, to have been a part of it. Yeah, well, my, my pleasure. I said, yeah, it was the most rescheduled guest I've ever had. So, uh, <laughs> I hope no one beat you because it was a pain in the ass, but I'm glad you're here. And, uh, and I do want to call out that you, you were in a car accident just a few days ago. Yeah, a couple of days ago. Nothing bad. Nothing, nothing major. Nothing major. I'm alive. So was that the first non-OD experience where you had first responders come take care of you? <laughs> yeah, I believe so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I believe so. And it was perfectly fine. No problem. <laughs> Good. Awesome. So, man. Yeah, thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it. So, thanks for joining us, Stephen. And uh, anyone will uh, look, look for Rescue the Rescuer. Um, anywhere you listen to podcasts, you can find it. And we'll throw the links in on the Good Men Project and at realmenfeel.org. Um, and until next time, thanks for joining with us. And, uh, you know, leave a review, a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Visit realmenfeel.org. Check us out on Facebook. Send us uh, feedback. Um, check out Stephen's show. And be good to yourself. Bye. Thank you for listening to Real Men Feel. 
reach out to us at realmenfeel at gmail.com. Learn more about Andy Grant at theandygrant.com. Until next time, visit realmenfeel.org or the Real Men Feel Facebook group and share what you thought of this episode. Please give this podcast a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you are discovering Real Men Feel. Visit goodmenproject.com for more of the conversations no one else is having.